Our Girly Evolution is a bi-weekly, bilingual podcast sharing stories of women around the world, navigating women's new frontier, the Me Too millennium. Join Carolina Rocchio and me, Our Girly, as we interview women from different walks of life, as well as different cultures, to explore the inspirations, issues, and irritations women across the globe share. Our girly revolution focuses on how women may have been born to different houses, but we are sisters in the end. Michelle Lamphere is a woman changing the way the world sees women on motorcycles. Originally from the Black Hills of South Dakota, Ms. Lamphere set out with her partner to travel for two years through North and South America. She went on to write a guidebook, Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America, Things I Wish I knew Had Known Before I Rode My Motorcycle to Mexico, Central and South America, as well as a memoir called The Butterfly Route. When she is not busy traveling and writing, she is active in inspiring other women to take on the road in such groups as Women Riders World Relay. We are honored to have her join us uh, on Our Girly Revolution to tell us how she became a woman of the road. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Hi, Renee. I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're really happy to have you. So what was your inspiration to get on a bike and hit the road? Well, I had been a motorcycle rider for about 10 years before I actually left on the journey, but I usually only rode um, short day trips or maybe an afternoon or evening ride after work. I had been a hotel manager for more than 20 years and very busy in the summer season. I live in a part of the world where we have cold winters, long winters, and icy roads, so I only get to ride a few months of the year. So I wasn't um, a person who really thought of traveling long distance by motorcycle. Was that kind of a point in my life after 20 years in my job of sacrificing a lot of time where I was missing out on time with family, time with friends. Um, I didn't have as much time to travel as I wanted to. And I kind of decided I wanted to make a change in my life and do something different and try and make more time for those things that were really important to me. So I, I um, decided to make that change. And so what was the process that you had to go through to get, go through your trip? At the time that I decided to leave my job, I was dating a man who had been actually traveling long distance and and long term by motorcycle. And um, he had ridden through South and Central America and and had shared stories and photos with me. And it just looked amazing. So it was something that I had never really considered before. But I started to think, if if I'm going to leave this job that is so all-consuming of my time and try and do something different. Maybe I'll take a sabbatical. Maybe I'll take six months to a year for myself and do something like that. I love traveling. I love motorcycle riding. So maybe I'll combine the two. And it was something really genuinely I'd never thought of before. It was kind of a process. It took me about a year, but I started planning financially to get myself in a position to do it. And I really downsized, Um, started selling a lot of things, Um, Not as much as I should have, I think, in hindsight, but that's just part of where I was at with that Western culture and that, you know, Western mentality and lifestyle. So I downsized, put my favorite things in storage. I put my house on the market. So I sold my house. um, And when I was in a good position to do it, I finally quit my job. And I had put enough money in savings that I decided I would take six months and I would go ride. And I 
left the door open on the time frame and decided that, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to like it. I wasn't sure that I was going to feel comfortable, but my partner and I had talked about retracing his steps uh, back through the U S down through Mexico and Central America. And we were hoping to make it as far as Ushuaia, which is the bottom of Argentina on Tierra del Fuego, where the boats leave to go to Antarctica. We're hoping we could accomplish that in six months to a year. And I, I knew that it was probably going to take at least a year and decided to, um, to give that a go. That is so cool. So when you set out on your trip, what was one of the highlights um, while touring in the U.S.? Um, for sure, it, for me, it was getting to see a lot of the people that I hadn't been able to spend time with. So I have, a, a, I'm from a big family of a lot of cousins that are dispersed all over the United States and aunts and uncles, et cetera. So we would actually travel to different towns to see friends of mine from high school, friends from college or previous jobs, and actually just kind of hopscotched our way across the U.S., spending a couple of days with a lot of my friends and family, which was wonderful. The, the journey itself, the motorcycle ride was beautiful. I got to ride through um, every state in the continental um, U.S. on the journey, and we made a big wow. lap of it. But um, the highlight for me, for sure, was getting to spend time with friends and family that I'd been missing out on for so long. I, I missed going to weddings and going to some family reunions because of my job taking so much of my time. So it was nice to sit and have one-on-one -on -one time with, you know, a cousin over dinner or an aunt and uncle for a couple of days. It was, it was beautiful and the best part of the journey for sure. And so, and then what was it like crossing the border when, when you went from the U.S. Uh, like through Mexico and then onward? Well, the crossing itself isn't that difficult. I think it, physically, as far as getting over the border, there's a little bit of a, okay. a, an issue for me for the language barrier. I, I had taken Spanish in high school, but to be fair, that had been 22 mm -hmm. years before or 25 years before. And my, my Spanish was, was very, very rusty and minimal to say the least. But I think it was a bigger emotional mm -hmm. hurdle for me because raised in a rural part of America and listening, of course, to, you know, the, the press, the news um, and friends and family, there's a lot of fear mongering, unfortunately, that goes into politics and into countries. And I think America definitely has um, had a history of, of having an attitude of fear towards Mexico, that it's a very dangerous place, that it's filled with a lot of cartel activity. And it's, it's not necessarily a place you want to go to alone, certainly not on a motorcycle. Um, even though I was with my partner on two motorcycles, obviously being on a motorcycle mm -hmm. is, is makes you very vulnerable. So I was, was really, really nervous about it. Um, I remember actually being mm -hmm. kind of physically ill for about three days before we were crossing into Mexico because I was just terrified. Wow. I had I had an uncle who's a law enforcement officer, and he wanted to know what I was taking for a weapon with me. How would I protect myself? Had I taken any self defense courses? Um, so it was it was something wow. that I I really was nervous about, but it turned out to be so differently than I expected. We crossed into Mexico and. I rode my motorcycle. I stopped at the border guard and handed her my passport, my paperwork, and my permit. She looked at it and she said, all right, you're good to go. Come on in. And I rode over the tope, which is a, like a speed bump. And there were two in a row and they were made of these little domes, which are a little 
little more difficult for riding with a motorcycle, a skinny motorcycle tire over, and it kind of wobbles your bike. And as I was going over, I lost my balance and dropped my motorcycle on the side. And two men, one from opposite sides, each from opposite sides of the street came running out and helped me lift my bike and asked if I was okay. They, they would push it over to the side of the street for me. They were kind of, you know, dusting me off and making sure that, you know, I wasn't injured. And they were so, so kind and so warm and welcoming. And they were Mexican men, literally 15 feet into Mexico, that were coming to my rescue. So it was, it was absolutely the opposite of what I'd expected going in. And it was such a nice way to break the ice and have that be my first impression of Mexico. Wow, that's really neat. Yeah. And so while touring there, what was, your, what was the highlight of touring Latin America? for you? So we, we rode, when we left South Dakota, we, we planned on going, like I said, for about six months to a year, but we went north. We went north into Canada, which is the opposite direction of where we needed to go, obviously. By the time we got into Mexico, I was already, I'd been on the road for six months, well, sort of on the road for six months. And then we spent three months in Mexico just about three months in Central America and then a year in South America total. So at the, as far as um, a highlight in South America, you, you'd mentioned or asked just a minute ago, I, I would have to say by far mm-hmm. the same thing as it was for, for North America. It was just the people that I met. And even though they weren't friends and family when I met them, by the time we left, they certainly felt like that. Um, everybody along the way, it was, we crossed paths with other motorcyclists, with a lot of local families. We met locals who were riders um, and just random strangers, either in hostels or in restaurants or at the side of the road. If I had, you know, an issue with my motorcycle, people would pull over and help and um, just random people driving, passing me along on the Pan American Highway people would roll down their window and give me a thumbs up. They were very supportive and so friendly. So yeah, it was by far the best part of the entire trip. Um, No matter where we were was the people. For me as well, I have to agree. And I think that's an inspiration of the podcast. People around the world that are just cool and so neat to meet. Yeah. And I think in in an adventure like this, you really are very vulnerable and very exposed. I mean, not just physically, because I mean, if a, if a truck or a car comes across your lane, you are not protected. You're sitting exposed on top of a motorcycle, but also as you're camping, you know, in the wilderness at night and you're not inside a building or you're exposed to, you know, what you envision as all sorts of threats, weather, um, theft, all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. But none of that ever happened. None of it. In a year and a half in Latin America, I had nothing but positive experiences. And we had one little sketchy thing on the side. But in a year and a half, I mean, that could happen anywhere in my hometown, anywhere in my own country. So it was, it was the best part of the trip was the people and how every one of those experiences just renewed my faith in humanity and how there is so much more good in the world than there is bad. And then on that note, did you feel like you were treated differently than your partner um, due to being a woman? Did you feel that different? Was there, did you feel that? Yeah, yeah, no, there were definitely places and that, that kind of varied from experience to experience. So there were countries that I could tell were definitely, well, and I think Latin America in general is definitely a male dominated society. Um, but more so I think in South America than I noticed even in Mexico or Central America. 
Um, so each country was a little bit different. Each situation was a little bit different. There are, as we are riding overland, so we're not traveling by plane, we're, we're crossing borders with paperwork and with um, different customs and, and immigration offices and officers. We would go up to the borders and immediately any uh, guards or officers would start talking to my partner because he was a man. But his Spanish skills weren't as good as mine. Um, so they would have to be deferred to me. Brian would, would kind of wave my direction and they'd come over and talk to me. And, but you could tell their initial instinct was not to talk to the woman. And in some cases, um, people didn't know that I was a woman because I'd have my hair tucked into my jacket so that it wasn't out in the wind or in a braid under my helmet. And I was wearing a big black um, padded jacket and a big set of armored pants, big kind of motorcycle boots and a big black helmet. So I, I and not to mention I'm 5'8", so I'm taller than most of the men in South America or tall, as tall as many of them. So in a lot of places, they thought I was a man until I took off my helmet. Um, but it, it was always funny. It was a different experience wherever I went that, you know, some reception was very, very nice. They were very polite, very chivalrous. Um, would give me extra time, speak more slowly. Some would ask if I needed something to drink. Did I need a restroom? Sometimes I got very spoiled because I was a woman and, and sometimes I was kind of cold shouldered at first until they realized they, you know, they needed to work with me on, on anything as far as paperwork or crossing the borders. Yeah. And so what, what challenges did you face um, on the road? What were some of the obstacles? Oh, gosh, er everyday life felt like a challenge. Um, and that sounds yeah. a little bit dramatic, but every day did. It just felt like work. Every day was, you know, a new situation. So as we traveled, we'd have to figure out where we were going to camp. We spent about a third of the time camping um, in a tent. We spent about a third of the time in hostels. Um, and then the rest of the time, either with friends that we met along the way, we were fortunate enough to have a couple of contacts in uh, Guatemala, in Colombia, in, in Ecuador, in Chile. So we could go stay with friends or friends of friends for a couple of weeks and rest up. Um, so that was just extremely restful to go and, and you know, know that we had a safe place and get support and have some time to work on the bikes or to stock up on supplies or do administrative work. If we had to buy new insurance or work on renewing visas or anything, we had a place to land. It was, it was a lifesaver. But I think that the day-to-day -day stress of trying to figure out, okay, where are we sleeping tonight? Where are we getting food? Are there gas stations ahead that we can buy fuel? Um, we would go in different parts, especially as we got into South America, into the Andes. There were um, different languages spoken, different um, dialects of Quechua and Spanish and kind of a mixture of the two and languages that yeah. I really didn't even recognize. And I, I struggled with that. So just making sure that we could get through a language barrier, trying to figure out the, the local laws. It was amazing to me all the way from Mexico down, every time you crossed a border from Mexico into Belize and then into Guatemala and onto Honduras, and Nicaragua and so forth the road signs would be different. So there would be different road or verbs used for not say not, we will say don't litter in the United States. 
Well, every sign that was like that in Central America was different in every country because they use a different version of Spanish or a different word is the one that's used in that country. So I felt like I was always having to keep learning Spanish and um, just, you know, understand the laws and um, add to that the exchange rates and, and um, you know, the different customs where you buy things, et cetera. And it, it, every day just felt like work. But that's just everyday life, not to mention the challenges of, you know, the riding over mountains and riding rugged roads and uh, making this journey, which in the end for me was 45,000 miles or um, wow. 60, 60 some thousand kilometers that I rode on the trip. So that in and of itself was its own challenge. And yeah. now, did you guys make it to Ushuaia? Did you make did. it to Ushuaia? Or- <laughs> we oh, did. Wow. <laughs> It took uh, oh, wow. a lot longer. And then did you said. ride back? We rode, uh, we did make it to Ushuaia. We got there in January, about a year and a half after I'd left South Dakota. So it took much longer than expected. But then we rode the bikes back as far as um, Buenos Aires. And from Buenos Aires, okay. we made arrangements to fly the motorcycles back to Vancouver. Um, and then okay. rode from Vancouver wow. through Canada and back into South Dakota. <laughs> wow, that is yeah. neat. It was that an incredible so cool. adventure. It, it, I am so blessed. I was able to ride through 20 countries on the trip and to experience parts of the world that I've dreamed of seeing for, for decades. And it's wow. such a beautiful part of the world that I, I'm really so happy that I went and so happy I made the trip, even though it was one I was really terrified of in the beginning. Um, didn't know if I had the mm-hmm. skill set or anything like that. I, I'm so grateful I made the trip and took the chance and learned yeah. stuff as I went. And then, and then you went, and then you went back to South Dakota, and then you went back to your job. Did you go I, back to the same job? I didn't go back to the same job. I actually came back. I had a job waiting for me about two months after I left the one that I'd been at 20 years. I had a friend call and offer me a job. And I decided, I told him that I was on the road and that I was going to be a year or so before I came home. Uh, but he just kept holding the job. And he said, when you get back, let me, we'll put you to work. So I came back and, and oh, have been great. at that job now for just over three years. And so on uh, your, on your, on, on your travels, and I always get asked this, um, as a fellow woman traveler is mm-hmm. now, did you feel unsafe? I mean, you're here, we get scared and, um, People say, you know, it's dangerous out there, but did you along the road, you yourself ever feel unsafe? There were definitely times, I, th- I think I'm a different traveler because I've traveled to 70 some countries and mostly I've flown in and spent a couple weeks in different places and flown back home. So that's a, a little different experience than this one. I mm-hmm. have, I think developed, I, and I, I don't want to sound, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't want to be naive about this, but I think I've developed at least some basic skills for trying to keep myself a little safer. I don't go out at night. I don't um, drink alcohol. And, and I mean, if I'm going to, I may take something back to like a campsite or a room and know that I'm in a really safe place. Just really try to not be vulnerable. Um, when I'm riding, I try and get tucked in by dark. So if that means setting up camp and off the road or into a hostel, I just make sure that I'm tucked away. The motorcycle is tucked away and made a, a really conscious effort to get away from borders. Border towns seem to be a little bit more where a location where things go down. 
deals are being made, um, you know, stuff is being smuggled across borders, et cetera. So we tried to stay close to borders or fairly close to borders within a couple hours ride the day before we were crossing, get across the border first thing in the morning and then ride as far as we could away from the border to get deeper into the country and get our bearings. So just made a, a choice to do that. That's not to say that I didn't have um, some uneasiness. I definitely did. There were times that I felt like, you know, I was in an uncomfortable situation, but I, I think most of that was just me being always wary and being alert and nothing really ever came of anything. I think for the most part, we were all always really safe. So I wouldn't say that I ever felt unsafe except for one, one incident in two years on the road. And that was just kind of a, a random strange thing. We had been traveling um, in Honduras and taken a wrong turn off of the Pan American Highway onto what we thought was going to be a shortcut to the village, or the, I should say, the small town that we wanted to stay in that night. So we took um, about, that was about 20 minutes. We'd gone maybe 10 miles up this dirt road and kind of wound our way around, crossed a couple of creeks, and got up into the hills in this really rural village. And it was just kind of a, a small, single street town. We rode all the way through town past a police station. And I saw a couple of kids playing across the street from the police station. I saw someone sitting in front of the police station as we rode past. We rode all the way through town, which was, by American terms, about four blocks long. We got to the other end, and it was a dead end. So we realized, you know, we looked at the GPS, looked at the map, realized we were in the wrong place, and we needed to retrace our steps and get back out to the highway. So we turned around, and my partner was ahead of me riding ahead, and he, he was, was looking, looking to the right and, and uh, watching the children in the ditch, making sure that they weren't going to come out into the street as we rode past. And I was looking to the left. I was kind of looking around. But as I looked to the left, I saw the police officer that I'd seen sitting in front of the station stand up. And he pulled a gun from a holster. And he turned and actually fired it either into or at the police station, the building. And I, don't, I didn't see where the, the shot went. So I hear the bang, but Brian had been looking the other direction. The police officer um, puts his gun back in his holster and he walks right out to the street and he waves and yells for us to stop. Well, I'm parked right, like kind of head to toe against um, my partner's motorcycle. So I can't really escape. And I'm not sure if I should, I don't want to set him off. I don't really know what to do. And of course, my heart's racing. Mm -hmm. And I lift my um, visor yeah. up and I have earplugs in. I, I ride with earplugs. We, we all do, or most riders do, to try and save your hearing. Yeah. So he says something. He's asking for our papers. Well, Brian doesn't understand him and um, lifts his visor up and says, what? To the guy. And the guy is standing there. He looks, the, the officer, he looks either intoxicated or on drugs. It's a Friday afternoon, late in the day. Something doesn't look right besides the fact that he'd had a gun in his hand, but he, he just seems out of sorts. Yeah. You can tell that he's trying to think and I don't, so I lift my helmet up and I say in my most feminine voice, good afternoon. How are you? We're tourists. We're trying to find our way. And I, and I don't know if it's going to make it worse that I'm going to play victim or if it, it's going to wake him up to the fact that I'm a woman, because so many times a lot of people didn't know that I was a woman because of all of my gear. Well, it definitely caught him off guard. So he 
turned to look at me really sharply and you could see that that changed everything. And he stood for a second and he didn't ask for papers. And I, I said, did you need our papers? What, what do we need? What do you need? And then he just paused for, you know, a couple of seconds. And finally he just waved and said, go. Brian looked back at me. He wasn't able to understand what was going on. And I said, go. And he's like, go, I, doesn't he want our papers? And yeah. I said, no, go. <laughs> we didn't realize until later that Brian hadn't seen it. He had been watching the little children in the ditch. And then I had been watching the officer. So I'd seen it. Brian smelled, he heard the bang and he smelled the gunpowder, but he thought the kids had been playing with fireworks. So he had no idea what, what oh. was going on that at that time. And, you know, like I said, I, I don't know that oh. it, it, what it was, I didn't don't know what he was up to. Um, but I, 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 we talked to a couple of friends in Nicaragua once we crossed the border and we were staying with them for a few days and they said it was definitely a situation that could have gone very badly. So mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't, it didn't turn out to be anything. That was the only time that I legitimately felt unsafe. Otherwise mm -hmm. in two years on the road, there wasn't another incident. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I had people you know, pull over on the side of the road if I was checking for directions on a map and ask if I needed any help. Did we need anything? Did we have enough water? Did we know where we were going? Um, did we need directions for fuel? And, and people were just amazing. And that happened literally dozens or maybe even a couple of hundred times in two years as opposed to that one incident. You, you ended your journey and um, you came back and you've written not just one book, but two books about your travels. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your books? The first one that I wrote um, is actually kind of a, a way of saying thank you, I suppose. it what, Before I went on the trip, I attended a couple of meets that were put on by a, an overlanding group or a travel group called Horizons Unlimited. And that was founded by a couple who traveled by motorcycle for a number of years. And they came back and founded a website. I think they traveled in the 90s. They formed this website as a way of um, starting a forum, a chat room, a resource network for people who wanted to do similar trips. And it's grown to uh, a pretty enormous organization. There's tens of thousands of people who follow it and a number of adventurers that use it as a resource. And we often did as well. So if we needed to reach out and find out, hey, can anybody recommend a shipping company? Can anybody recommend a ferry company? Um, that was a great resource for us. But before we left on the trip, I attended one of their meets in Ontario, and I sat in on a women's only session. So they have a lot of different classes and speakers that okay. you go to and just kind of learn the skill sets that you need, whether it's um, fire building or tire repair for motorcycles, etc. Um, and I sat in on a women's only class where they talked about women's safety, women's issues, um, and it was such a warm and welcoming group of women. I've actually stayed in touch with a few of them. And the, the resources, the confidence, the um, information that they gave me before the trip was enough to help me make the decision to go because I think I was on the fence at the time. So I, I really think that, that attending that was such an invaluable thing for me that I wanted to share that with others. And I reached out to Horizons Unlimited when I got home and asked if I if they needed any presenters, if it would be beneficial or useful in any way for me to share some of the information from our trip about border crossings and where to stay and what we did. 
Um, so I actually presented at a couple of meets for them in Canada and the U.S. And after those presentations, people would ask for a copy of my PowerPoint presentation. So I'd email it out. And mm -hmm. I was getting so much demand for it that I thought, well, maybe I'll just turn it into a little $5 ebook and um, sock away some money for my next trip. And then if anybody yeah. that wasn't there at Horizons Unlimited wanted it, they could do that. So the first one was actually a little booklet on how to do the trip yourself. And I did that. I wrote it about three months after we got back to the States. And that's the okay. uh, Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America book. Six months after that, I had not left on the beginning of the trip planning to write a book, but six months after okay. putting out that little booklet, people kept asking about the stories and the trip, and, and I, a few people suggested I write a book. And, and even as I had gotten home and I was going over the memories of it, and I thought it would, it would make an interesting book maybe to me. I'm not sure it would to everybody else, but I decided to start writing a memoir, and I published that. Um, about a year and a half ago, and that's the butterfly route. Yeah. So how long did it take you to write um, first the first book? How long did it take you to write the first book? The the first one, it's only like fifty six pages, so it's a booklet. And all I a lot of what I did was co copy okay. and, cut and paste out of the PowerPoint. So it literally took not even a week. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. really? Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. And then your memoir, as I just wrote a memoir and it took, it was taking me a long time because my life kept changing, but I'm, I'm just curious, how long did that take you to write the book? Well, I wrote journals every day along the trip, okay. which was really useful to go back to. And that it, it but it was almost okay. worse because then I, I'd get lost in my journals. Oh, I want to uh -huh. share this. I want to share that. And it's too much. Um, but yeah. I would say all mm -hmm. told, I worked on that book for about a year. Mm -hmm. it, it was, it was good times and it's things worth sharing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, um, so you're still, now you still, you've become a bit of um, active in with other women writers, like in a women community. Would you tell us about your work with groups like Women Writers World Relay? Sure. Um, I stay active in a number of groups, just trying to support other people that are traveling overland through that Horizons Unlimited group or any other groups that are out there. Um, but this one is kind of a new, unique one. And this one is very specific to women, which is near and dear to my heart. Because as a woman rider, we're the minority. And I, I know yeah. when I was learning to ride and when I was looking at traveling by motorcycle, I didn't really have a lot of peers that I could ask questions of. And I didn't feel comfortable always asking the guys. Um, so there was a woman in the UK, Haley Bell is her name, and she posted on a women's motorcycle website last August that she'd had a crazy idea. Um, and I think a few of us perked up, and I didn't know her personally, but we started following this thread, this comment on her post, and she was saying she had been daydreaming at work one day, and she wondered, wouldn't it be a fantastic way to connect women around the world that were motorcyclists if we took a baton and passed it from one woman to the next and kept passing it to women motorcyclists until we had carried it all the way around the world? And the concept was, yeah, the concept was fantastic to me. And I thought, what a unique and interesting way of connecting women that don't know each other and having a shared purpose and um, opening up just kind of the dialogue and discussion for how many women there are out there. I think Haley has a little bit different perspective in that um, she also wanted to use that 
um, as a forum, as a way of opening a voice to the motorcycle industry, because as women, we have a hard time finding motorcycles yeah. that are short enough for us or gear that fits us very well. Most of the time, the jackets and protective gear and boots and coats are made for men. And so there aren't as many choices for us. The ones that we have kind of a running joke with women, the ones that are developed for women, everything comes out in pink. So there's pink coats and pink pants and <laughs> pink, pink boots. And we, we don't necessarily want that. We just want <laughs> things that fit. Um, but I, I think for me, the focus was really about connecting women and, and it is for all of us. Um, but within a week, mm-hmm. she had formed a Facebook page. And as of now, we're four, between 14 and 15,000 members on the page. I serve as an admin. There are eight of us that are admins on the group, and we have worked and worked together a team, and we have the relay scheduled to start February 27th in the UK, and the baton will be on the road for a year. So we're planning to to actually okay. pull this off. Wow, that is so <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. be on the lookout for that. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to be watching it closely myself with big, big excitement. So, yeah. Will the baton come through the Black Hills? It has to, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, it is. It should be. Um, (laughs) It's actually scheduled to be in the the route. So it won't come into the States until the end of September, early October. So Liza Miller is the ambassador for the United States. She's a motorcyclist out of California. And she's planning the route and the schedule. Um, but she does have it coming oh, okay. from Milwaukee out to Seattle. And that would mean it would cross through the Black Hills oh, on its way. So believe me, I, I would love to get a chance oh. to carry it. It would be an honor. So I'm, I'm hoping I can be included in that. So what would you say to other women um, setting forth to travel the world or considering to do that? Because I know there's a lot of people that are in that predicament where they've had their job and it's been great. But, you know, there's, that's why I left. I was curious about the world. Um, what yeah. would you say to women um, with the this in their heart? Oh, gosh, it's scary. I know making that change and making that leap. I've, I've obviously been there. But for me, it was so worth it. And, and I think there's a lot of fear, just the emotional hurdle of getting through that transition and doing something like that, traveling on your own or finding someone to travel with. But there are ways to kind of eliminate some of the things that you worry about and that you fear. So, you know, properly financially plan for it. Maybe make some contacts or connections in the places that you're going or people who have done the kind of travel that you have. Do your homework. Know what the journey is going to be like. Know, you know, the places that you're going and what what you need to watch out for and be careful of. So I think preparation and being smart are some of the keys to that. Um, but really just know that there, there's way more good in the world than there is bad. Be smart about avoiding the bad, but going out and being able to experience the good that's out there is worth taking that chance. And at least it was for me. Absolutely. And what would you like to changed in the world for women to travel more smoothly? Well, I think there's still a lot of places in the world where women are seen as less less than equal to men, obviously, especially, um, you know, in, in countries where that's just part of the culture. But I'm really hoping that my traveling through some of those countries and being a respectful traveler, I'm respectful of their customs. I don't, I'm not an in-your-face traveler or question things um, about why they're doing things the way they do it in their own country. But I think I just try to live by example. 
And I would hope that by, by my being out there and still being, you know, ladylike and courteous and um, exploring their country, being respectful of their culture and customs, I think I'm setting an example for women being out there. And I think I'm also in a way setting an example for men that this isn't so bad. This, this is um, something that I hope expands everyone's horizons and that we just really all treat each other with respect and um, hopefully push some boundaries for other women to be able to do this around the world as well. And so what are, what are your current plans? You were telling me a little bit about um, you, you're working in, in Rapid City, but you've, you've got another little project that you're working on. <laughs> it's about to be a big project, I, I think. And, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It sounds like I'm just the wrong word. <laughs> yeah. So I know, I, I'm looking, yeah. I know. Yeah, so when I, when I got home from the trip, I went to work for a hotel company and kind of fell back into the same type of job that I'd had before I left, which um, was wonderful from the standpoint that it, was, it allowed me to get back on my feet financially, get some money in the bank. I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. I knew that it was just kind of a, a next step or a bridge to where I really wanted to be. And when I was out on the road, I've managed hotels for 20-some years. When I was traveling, I saw that differently and stayed at hostels and stayed in different lodges and little bed and breakfasts. And I have had a dream for a long time of having my own little place. So I stashed money away for the past three years as I was working and have uh, been working to try and get my own little place. And I have bought a little hotel in Custer, South Dakota, which that's going to be my new project starting this spring. Wow. So tell <laughs> us about this place. Custer, yeah, so South Dakota is near the Black Hills. It's in, a, it's in a beautiful national park with buffaloes. And I just telling the viewer or the listeners to this, it's a beautiful part of South Dakota. And um, so now you're going to own a little a little in there. That's really exciting. Go ahead. It is. It is. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited. It's a little 16 room, 80 some year old, <laughs> small motel, a little roadside vintage cozy motel. And it's located right outside of Custer State Park where there is a big buffalo herd. It's in the pine forests of the Black Hills. It's a gorgeous part of the world. Um, so it's, it's definitely a little fixer upper, but if I have any overlanding friends or motorcyclists or traveling women who want to put it on their radar, they'd always have a place to stay. Um, so yeah, it, it's a gorgeous place to visit. And I'm really, really excited to be on the other side of the traveling now. I, I still want to travel and I'm hoping that this affords me that because it's only going to be open six months a year. Um, so I'll still be out mm -hmm. there exploring and checking out different parts of our world and different cultures. And then I'll be back playing host half the year for people that want to come see my part of the world. Yeah. Balance. balance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thank you, Michelle. It's been an honor having you. I appreciate it, your time and your it's stories. Been an, it's been Anything. an honor being here, Renee. Thank you so much for including me. And if I can ever be of any assistance to you or other travelers, please keep me in mind. Thank you for joining OurGirlyRevolution.com. For more interviews of women around the world sharing their personal revolutions, please subscribe to our podcast at OurGirlyRevolution.com. To learn more about Michelle Lamphere, please check out her blog at sturgischick.wordpress.com backslash blog backslash. 
as well as pay her a visit if you find yourself in the beautiful Black Hills of South Dakota. For more information on the Chalet Hotel, check out their website at www.chaletmotelcuster.com. Until next time, viva.